Well, good evening, everyone. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And it's a great pleasure tonight to introduce our speaker, the latest in our series um, on the occasion of the centenary of the First World War, looking at questions of war and peace. And our speaker tonight is Professor Hugh White. Um, Hugh is the Professor of Strategic Studies at the Australian National University, but he's previously worked in a, a large number of different capacities. Um, he was a senior advisor for Australian Labor governments in, on the staff of both the Prime Minister and then later the Defence Minister. Uh, he later on worked in the Department of Defence itself, where he was the Deputy Secretary for Strategy and Intelligence, and he was then the Director of the Strategic Policies Institute. So he's got a, a breadth of experience in a range of different forum. He's the author of numerous publications, most recently his book The China Choice, why America should share power. And if you're interested, there are copies outside, and I, I believe you're going to stay here and, and put your imprimatur on them. Um, so if you'd like to bring a copy up afterwards, um, please do so. Um, he was also the principal author, amongst other things, of the 2000 Defence White Paper, and he's a regular commentator in the press, in the Sydney Morning Herald, in the Guardian, in the Far East Economic Review, and, and numerous other places. Well, we, we regularly hear that the purpose of centennial commemorations of the First World War is to learn the lessons. But, but really, um, lessons are, are rarely explicitly drawn. And it's uh, no easy feat to do so. But that's the feat which uh, Professor White is going to try and do for us today. He's going to speak for about 50 minutes and then there's going to be time for question and discussion, 45, 50 minutes. So can I ask you to join me in welcoming Professor Hugh White. Well, uh, thanks very much, Robin, for that very kind introduction and thank you, Naomi, for getting me here and making all of this work. It's a great pleasure uh, to take part in this series and a great pleasure to be here at, at LSE um, and to speak on this topic. Um, it's a, quite a tough gig in some ways because, as Robin said, um, the idea of drawing lessons from 1914 for today has been pretty widely advertised. It's a few books been published about it now uh, and so on and so it's a little bit hard to um, know exactly where to start. What most people do when they try and draw out some lessons from 1914 for what's happening today and particularly what's happening in Asia today is to start off with an account of what happened in 1914 and then move into the present. I'm going to do things the other way around. So I'm going to start with a scenario. And scenarios are very difficult things. They're quite dangerous analytical tools because they can kind of grab hold of our imagination and um, uh, start distorting our analysis. But they are very handy to do one thing in particular, and that one thing is, to my mind, very important. Keynes once said that the hardest thing for anybody to accept is, that, is to really accept is that the future can be significantly different from the present or the recent past. 
it does need some imagination to see how the world can work differently in future from the past. And I think that's particularly true when we think about questions of war and order. And so, and scenarios are useful in this. Scenarios can help us to recognise possibilities out there about the way in which the world could be different from the way we expect it to be. And so I'm going to sketch a scenario which is not a prediction, but it is intended to exercise our imagination and identify some possibilities. So we call this scenario the War of 2015. So sometime, maybe tonight, out there in the East China Sea, by accident, maybe, or maybe by somebody's intention, Chinese and Japanese forces clash. A Chinese ship uh, shoots down a Japanese aircraft, or a Japanese ship shoots down a Chinese aircraft, doesn't really, really matter very much which way it starts. And it's worth making the point that that first step, whilst not very likely, I'm, like I say, this is not a prediction, I don't think it's very likely that that will happen tonight or the night after or sometime in the next few years, but it's far from impossible, far from impossible. The, the, the forces in the, in the East China Sea, the forces of those two countries are regularly rubbing up against one another in situations in which it doesn't take a very big series of mishaps or intentions by individuals for that to happen. And so that starts the story. It starts the scenario. Now, it's possible that the scenario could end there. With good statecraft on both sides, in Tokyo and in Beijing, it will be perfectly possible with one ship being sunk or one aircraft being shot down. For the two sides to get together, to talk, cool heads would prevail, steady hands on the wheel from both sides could resist the pressures to escalate and retaliate and so on, and that the thing would just end there. That is perfectly possible. But it's not very likely. It's not very likely from what we know of the quality of crisis management in the two capitals. It's not very likely from what we know of the personalities of the leaders involved. Um, it's not very likely from what we know of history. That is, most of the time, when things start going wrong, they keep going wrong. And so it is more likely that there would be bungling and muddle, there'd be political weakness, and there would be misplaced optimism. One of the most dangerous things in this kind of situation is that as each side asks, do I have to step back and pay the political and strategic costs of conceding to the other side, that misplaced optimism produces a situation in which both sides are inclined to believe that the other side's going to step back so they don't have to. And so I think uh, for both sides, the risks that they will not step back, that they will instead decide that this crisis gives them an opportunity to make a point, to score a win, for China to establish that it's a great power that needs to be reckoned with, for Japan to realise that it too is a great power that can't be pushed around. Both sides failed to take the choices, the hard choices that are needed to de-escalate the situation that arises. And so it escalates. Each side, perhaps, declares an exclusion zone. Both send ships and aircraft to enforce the exclusion zone, to try and keep the other out of the contested area. 
the, the military geography is quite tough in the sense that both sides have got a lot of forces close to the area of operation, so they can in fact surge a lot of forces, a lot of ships and aircraft into the area quite quickly. And so very quickly we can end up with a significantly escalated confrontation between Japan and China. They start destroying more of one another's platforms. The prospect for de-escalation disappears quite quickly, probably within 24 hours. And what happens next, of course, is that Japan asks America for help. Very early on in the crisis, Japan asks America for help. And a quick decision is needed in, in Washington. If a quick decision, and it's a tough decision because there's very little room for manoeuvre. When Mr Abe gets on the phone to Mr Obama there are, and says, will you support us militarily in this confrontation? There are really, there's not much space between yes and no. So the president finds himself in the situation room and says, OK, what do I do here? And some participants in the discussion, certainly the ones who come from the political side and the ones who come from what you might broadly call the diplomatic side of the table, are going to find the answer very easy to give. They'll say, yes, of course you're going to support Japan against China. You've got to stand up to China to resist its bullying. You've got to support Japan, which is vital for the future of the alliance. And most importantly of all, you've got to preserve US leadership. Uh, the credibility of the pivot, the credibility of Obama's whole foreign policy, his promise that he would support Japan in these circumstances that he made when he was visiting Tokyo last year. And there's a big domestic political background to it. So for most of the people around the table in the Situation Room when this call comes through, the answer to the question that Abe asks Obama is a clear yes. Looks like an easy call. But then we hope that the President turns around and asks somebody in uniform, maybe the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, a different question. He asks something like, well, OK, what are the options, the military options you can offer me which give me a high chance of a quick, limited operation which delivers what looks like a successful outcome? In other words, what's the options to do something like what Bill Clinton did in 1996 during the Taiwan crisis where he deployed a couple of carriers down past Taiwan and more or less suppressed what then looked like a very difficult and dangerous crisis. What the President's after is something which gives him a high chance of a quick win through limited operations and a low risk of escalation to something bigger. And if that's what the President asks for, the Chairman looks back at him and says, I don't have any options like this. This is not 1996 anymore. The world is different. China could now impose real costs on us if we try and deploy our forces within range of China's forces. That's what's changed since 1996. We would, we America would lose ships and aircraft if we put them into that area of operations. So would the Chinese. Not as though it would just be America losing them. But America has, has no options which guarantee it a low-cost, low-risk, rapid escalation, uh, rapid success. America wouldn't lose, but it wouldn't win. So America would find itself in the position that it either must accept a stalemate after having lost a significant number of US platforms, or it must escalate. 
and that is a very that changes the nature of the president's calculation very significantly. Uh, and of course, escalation is exactly what I shouldn't say. Of course, as it happens, escalation is exactly what the U.S. military system has in mind. That's what the SE battle is all about. The SE battle, which has been articulated over the last few years, now has a change of name, but same basic concept, is all about responding to the operational situation which has evolved as China's uh, sea and air denial capabilities have improved. And has precisely produced the situation where the United States does see that the way in which it responds to that kind of situation is to escalate quickly, to not just fight the conflict in the immediate area uh, of contested waters, but to spread it to start attacking bases elsewhere. And in fact, that's what the United States would have to choose to do. The President faces the choice, not do I undertake a nice contained little operation somewhere out in the East China Sea, but am I willing to start attacking bases on China's mainland? Expecting, of course, that if, if the United States does that, the Chinese would, at least then, if they hadn't already started doing it, attack US bases in the Western Pacific, bases in Okinawa, on Guam, and perhaps within the Japanese home islands. Now, as Barack Obama, is, or whoever is president, starts to take a deep breath and ask himself, oh, wow, this sounds very scary, the chairman might also make this observation. Nobody knows how this maritime war was, would play out because nobody has fought a major maritime war since 1945. The Falklands, excuse me for anyone who likes to, would like to raise the Falklands as a counterexample, the Falklands was a small maritime war compared to this one. This, this maritime war gets very big very fast and we have no experience of how they work. Several generations of technology and several generations of tactical innovation have come and gone since anyone actually tried doing this for real. And so there will be real surprises. Things that we are sure will work won't work. Things that we wouldn't have thought of might work much better than we expected. This makes this a very risky business. It's in fact, it's the first conflict between major powers for a very long time. You might say since the Korean War, since the Sino-Soviet border clash maybe, in the late 60s, well, it's, this could very quickly, even at this level, become the biggest major power conflict in many decades. And of course, with the possible exception of the Kargil confrontation, it's the first serious conflict between nuclear armed powers. So there's a lot of very new stuff happening here. And that last point in particular suggests that we hope the President asks the Chairman, well, what about nuclear forces? How confident can we be that if this starts to escalate in the way we've described, it doesn't at some stage jump over the nuclear threshold and become a nuclear exchange? At which point the chairman, if he's honest, is going to say, we don't know that either. We don't know where the nuclear threshold is on this one. This is not like the Cold War where the whole question of the point at which nuclear escalation occurred was studied to death by vast numbers of people on both sides. This is not something that the American system has thought very much about, and uh, that's partly because they haven't taken China seriously as a nuclear power until now. But it does mean that there's a very deep uncertainties. He can only, the, the chairman in answering the president's question, can only rule out a nuclear exchange 
if he believes that China will not be willing to risk a nuclear war to challenge the United States, and that China believes the United States is willing to risk a nuclear war to preserve the status quo. He has to, he has to believe both of those things to be really confident that, that a nuclear escalation couldn't occur. And I think they will be both be very unwise assumptions. And if he's not prepared to make those assumptions, he'd have to say to the president that nuclear escalation cannot be ruled out. So that makes this a very tough decision indeed. The president has to decide whether to risk an escalating and perhaps nuclear conflict with China, which, by the way, separate point, has unthinkable economic consequences. Economic consequences of a US-China conflict are literally unthinkable. So he has to risk that kind of, undertake that kind of conflict or step back from US leadership in Asia. It's an extremely stark choice. Well, which, which, which does he choose or which does she choose? I mean, if, we, if it's not happening tonight but happening in a few years' time, it might be Hillary Clinton, it might be Jeb Bush. Um, well, we don't know. It depends partly on how clearly they see the choice, whether they in fact ask the questions that I've just sketched. What's actually just as likely is that they don't see the choices as clearly as I've sketched them out. It's quite likely that as usually happens in the crisis management business, the decision makers are quite muddled at the time, they're operating under great pressure, uh, they're subject to um, optimistic assumptions which they don't test properly. So it's quite possible that in this situation the President would allow himself or herself to assume that China would back off. It's a very tempting thing to assume because it escapes the terrible dilemma that I sketched before. And so he says or she says yes to Japan and starts a war with China. And almost well, very soon after he's made that decision, he's on the phone himself. He's on the phone to London and he's on the phone to Canberra and a few other places and says words to the effect of, we're going to water China, are you coming? And then we've got a tough choice as well. I'll get back to that. It's always worth bearing in mind that inherently risky situations become disasters because it's so easy to make bad decisions in a crisis. And that seems to me to be a very likely sequel in this scenario. Now, how improbable is all that? Well, as I say, this is not a prediction. I'm not saying this is going to happen. But it is just worth bearing in mind that by far and away the least probable of the steps I've just spelled out is the first one. Chances of, the, of China and Japan actually clashing in the East China Sea is not that high. Let me give you a completely bogus piece of quantification. There's a 5% chance of it happening sometime in the next five years, as things stand. That might sound quite low. It's actually, considering the consequences, is quite a high probability. And if that happens, then the probability of each of the subsequent steps that I've described is much higher, maybe 50% in each case. And, well, what that tells you is that this is a not very improbable outcome. 
And if that first thing happens, if we do end up with, a, with an exchange of fire in the East China Sea between the two principal um, combatants, then the chances of us ending up in the outcome I've talked about is really quite high. It reminds me of that wonderful phrase of Churchill's used to describe, in retrospect, the lead-up to Gallipoli, a terrible ifs accumulate. Well, Barbara Tuchman in Guns of August, which is the starting point for any contemporary discussion of what happened in 1914, chose that phrase, the terrible ifs accumulate, as the epigraph for the Guns of August. And, of course, the metaphor between 1914 and the situation in Asia today has become a cliché, and from a cliché it's become a major industry. Um, and a lot of the analysis of it tends to ask the question, are the circumstances the same or different? Is Asia today the same as Europe was in 1914? And in what ways is it the same and in what ways are it different? Look, I don't actually think that's the right question. Of course it's the same, there are similarities and there are huge differences. I don't think that helps us very much. I think the real question is to, is, is to sort of reverse that and ask not so much what happened in 1914 to make the war occur and is the same thing going to happen today to make the war occur, but what didn't happen in 1914 to prevent the war breaking out? Why was it the circumstances that arose meant that the momentum to war couldn't be stopped. And what does that tell us about the dangers we face today? So I want to unpack that by looking back at my scenario through the lens of 1914. And of course I have to start with a view of what happened in 1914, which is itself quite a complex question, and I'm not going to begin to try and give a comprehensive analysis of that. It's a much debated and retold story. But let me just start with a few basic points. The first is, um, unlike Fisher and his followers, I don't believe anybody in 1914 wanted the war. Nobody wanted the war to break out in 1914, which is similar to the scenario I've just sketched. Nobody wants a war in the, in the scenario I've just sketched. But nor was the war in 1914 simply an accident, the great Lloyd George model of slithering over the brink. Um, it wasn't a sort of a force of nature which left the statesman at the time powerless um, in its grip. Both of those explanations, either the war was caused by one person or one country, or the war was caused by nobody, are too easy. It's, no, it's one person's fault or it's no one's fault. In fact, it's everyone's fault. In the end, in, in all of the capitals involved, the key decision makers in the very last days of July and the first days of August chose to go to war. All of them chose to go to war. They didn't want to go to war, but they chose to go to war because they found themselves in a situation in which going to war seemed to them to be the lesser of two evils. Just as the president in my scenario chooses to go to war because he or she believes on balance that it's a lesser of two evils. And that belief is fed by all sorts of distortion, distorted analyses, but it's a, it's a very strong belief nonetheless. Now, the Europeans, everyone got themselves in this situation when the crunch came at the end of July and the beginning of August because of bad crisis management, because they didn't ask clear questions, 
because they all hoped to be able to score a success without going to war because they expected the other side to back off. And when that failed, when the diplomacy of mid-July, based on the expectation that everybody had that the others would back down, when that failed, they found themselves in a position where they faced exactly the kind of choice that my president faces in my scenario between deciding to go to war or backing down from a very, what seems to them to be a really central national interest in their place in the order. And they decide that terrible though the war is going to be, uh, going, it's a lesser of two evils. And it's not because they underestimated the scale of the war. A lot of the analysis of what happened in in the lead-up to the First World War presupposes that the statesmen of the time were just stupid and didn't realise how bad the war was going to be. There was a little bit of... There was a lot of muddle and confusion about how the war would play out, but it's very striking how many of the leaders, the Tsar, the Kaiser, Moltke, all at different times, critical times, talked about this as an absolutely catastrophic war. Moltke, the German chief of the general staff, described it as a war that, it, on the t at the time, I mean, in the very last days before mobilisation, described it as a war that would destroy European civilization for a century. So we, we can't say they just slid into this accidentally because they thought it was nothing. They knew it was going to be terrible, and they went ahead anyway because they saw the stakes as enormous. They saw the stakes for their country as enormous. Well, why was that? Why did the stakes seem so high? them when they faced that decision? Well, the answer is kind of well-known but oversimplified. What everybody knows is that there was a huge shift in the distribution of economic power, which produced a shift in the distribution of political power, which put pressure on the existing order in Asia, in Europe, rather. Um, a lot of people think, and often it's described as though that the, the, the main thrust of that was a, a shift the shift in the distribution of power and so on between the UK and Germany, as if there's just one pair in this. Germany's the rising power, Britain's the established power. In a Thucydidean way, they, they come into conflict. In fact, the story in Europe was much more complex than that. There were lots of rising powers, Russia in particular. If, if, if any power destabilised Europe in 1914, it was actually the rise of Russian power rather than the rise of German power. And the rise of Japanese power in Asia had a destabilising effect on the European order, European order being effectively a global order at the time. And there were lots of relatively falling powers, not just Britain, but France and Austria, of course, and Turkey, and also China. So there was a huge amount of coming and going. It was a very complex interaction. Of, uh, of, of power relativities. And that really did upset the old European order. The concept of Europe, itself a very contested concept, much romanticised, but without going into the detailed analysis, it is fair to say that something very special happened in Europe in the century between 1815 and 1914. It was a very good time for Europe. And one of the reasons for that was that the order that was established in in 1815, and which was sustained with modifications, some important modifications, right through to the to the second to the First World War, did, at least until the last decade or two, give a guaranteed place for all of the great powers as great powers. It defined the roles 
and expectations of the respective major players in relatively clear terms and provided a framework within which diplomacy could be, taken, could be undertaken with relatively constrained liabilities. And that's what started to break down in the face of this very complex set of interconnected power shifts. By 1914, it was well and truly crumbling. The rising powers expected a bigger place and expected more influence and became more assertive. The declining powers became more worried about hanging on to what they had and become, became more stridently defensive. And issues like the Balkans, which in the old days had been easily managed on their merits by, by great powers that were very confident of their place in the system, instead became more contentious as, and harder to resolve because the great powers focused less on the substantive issues at stake and more on the way in which the outcome of any negotiation on even the most trivial issue, what that meant for their place in the changing order. And they did care deeply about their place in the changing order. I mean, it's just necessary to say a sentence or two about this concept because it's quite central to what I'm saying. You know, I don't... I don't, I'm not trying to make as at all a sophisticated IR point here. I'm simply the, the, the concept of order as I'm talking about it is simply that set of norms and expectations, some of them explicit, some of them implicit, about how states relate to one another, which provide the framework in which a state system works. And it determines or shapes what they accept and what they resist. And of course it determines their status within the system. And nations' places within an order like that are extremely important to their sense of security and status, their hopes for prosperity and so on. Um, and there is just a very consistent pattern over a long time that states take this, stake their place in an order, protecting it, promoting it, improving it, as being as important to them as anything else in their collective life other than the actual direct defence of their territory and political system themselves. And often, of course, they see the two as very closely interdependent. And so when states feel either their place in the system at risk, if they're a declining power, or opportunities to expand it if they're a rising power, this, this goes to the very deepest motivations, which is why hegemonic wars, wars over places in the order, are so tough. Um, and if we look at the UK decision, if we can look through the decision of all of the players in 1914 and see their concerns about the order shaping their conduct uh, through the crisis and see how at the, at the crunch moment, in the very last days of July and the first days of August, when they faced the, that, that choice between which of these two evils is lesser, they all went to war because they all believed that protecting their place in the order was more important even than avoiding what they knew would be a really terrible war. And you can look at Britain's decision as an example of that. Um, Britain didn't go to war on the 4th of August 1914 over Belgium, and it didn't go to war over the, the commitment to help defend the French coast. It went to war to defend the status quo in Europe to prevent Germany acquiring too much power, to a certain extent also to prevent Russia acquiring too much power, 
Um, it believed that any new water which disturbed those relativities would be worse for the United for, for, for the UK. And to, be, and to take this step a bit further, I think the decision makers simply couldn't conceive a new order in which Germany and Russia would have more power. They, they couldn't imagine how they could move to that. And so the thought of, of going to war instead seemed less appalling. Of course, we all know what happened. The old order was passed anyway. The First World War did not preserve the old order. It destroyed it very thoroughly and destroyed a lot else besides. So you could say that war was not inevitable in 1914, but a new order was. It was inevitable that Europe was going to end up with a, 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 a new order. It was not inevitable that it had to go through a war to achieve it. Um, it would have been possible to... Um, avoid the situation in which the great powers faced the terrible choices they faced in the moment before the war began had they found, to manage, uh, found a way to manage the change in the order without going to war. Alistair Buchan back in the early 70s, I think 73 or 74 um, gave a series of um, lectures um, which he called Change Without War in which he analyses the idea of how, in what he saw then as the very significant revolutionary changes in the international order, these changes could produce changes in the distribution of power, could produce a change in the order without a conflict occurring. Um, and uh, I think that's exactly the thought I'm trying to capture here. The drift to war before July 1914 um, uh, occurred as pressure built up on the order and no one tried to initiate peaceful change. That's what set the scene in which poor crisis management in August, in July and August, could turn an assassination in Sarajevo into a catastrophe. So let me go back to Asia now and to today and ask, okay, what does that tell us about where we are now? Well, I would say there is a crisis of order in Asia driven precisely by a fundamental change in the distribution of wealth and power. More fundamental, in fact. Simpler, fewer players, but more fundamental than the shift, the power shift in Europe uh, in 19, before 1914. Um, now, what drives that, of course, is China's rise. China's not the only part of the picture, but it's by far and away the most important. I won't go on about China's rise, everybody knows that story, but it is worth bearing in mind that most of us, most of the time, do underestimate how big it is. China has overtaken the United States to become the biggest economy in the world on the measure that's most relevant for strategic questions on PPP. It is likely to continue growing significantly faster than the United States over the next few decades. It's not going to grow 10% per annum again, but it doesn't have to. One recent estimate, credible estimate, has the Chinese economy half as big again as America's economy in 15 years' time. That is not an incredible outcome. And of course, it's already far bigger as an economy, far more substantial economy relative to the United States than the Soviet Union ever was during the Cold War. Ever was. This is the most formidable adversary America has ever had since it became a world power. 
because it's the first industry the United States has ever had with an economy that's comparable, indeed bigger than America's. And it requires a real effort of imagination to hold that thought in our minds because it's so different from the distribution of power which has shaped the modern world as we know it. And it's worth bearing in mind that this is already true. So even if China's growth slows, that doesn't remove the challenge. Now the order which is challenged by China's growing power is a very dis distinctive one. The status quo in Asia is 40 years old or 43 years old. It dates from 1972 and Nixon's visit to China and it's based on uncontested US primacy. The key thing about Asia over the last few decades has not just been that America's been the primary power, though it has, it's been that its power has been, its position as the primary power has been uncontested by any other major Asian power. Uncontested by Japan, uncontested by China in particular. That has given the order unusual stability. Asia has been unusually stable over the last 40 years. In fact, it's the best 40 years in Asia's history. It's provided the setting in which Asia could achieve what it's achieved. It's provided, of course, the setting in which China could achieve what it's achieved. It's been very good for Asia and very good for China. And it was possible because in 1972, both Mao and Nixon made a big deal. It was a remarkable piece of statecraft on both sides. And from China's side, the deal was based on a simple recognition that China would be better off in the long term if it accepted US primacy for a while to provide the framework in which it could grow wealthy and strong. And that's just what it's done. And now it no longer accepts American primacy. It's changed its mind. Perhaps it was always going to. It now seeks a different order in Asia. It now seeks a new model of great power relations, as Xi Jinping so often says. What does that look like? Well, we don't know at one level, but I'll take a quick stab. I think what China would like would be to replace the United States as the primary power in Asia, and that at the very least it seeks equality with the United States. So it would like to be primary, but the, its absolute bottom line is that it wants to be treated by the United States as an equal. Now, for a long time, the scale of China's ambition to change the order in Asia was not apparent because the Chinese undertook a very sensible and rational policy uh, that is captured by the phrase Biden hide. Um, uh, it was not, it, it was very careful not to appear to challenge the United States until its power was sufficient that the challenge would be irresistible. And the decision seems to have been made sometime around 2008 or 2009 that now the time had come. Since then, China's challenge to US primacy has become more overt and very serious. And what underpins it, the way in which it, it um, um, is exercised, seems to me to be very simple and quite powerful and quite dangerous. That is, it wants to expand its position in Asia by reducing America's role America's role, America's leadership in Asia depends primarily on its alliances and particularly its alliance with Japan. The alliance with Japan depends on Japan's confidence that the United States will be there to support Japan when its key interests are threatened and particularly in the contemporary setting supported against China. And so China's objective is to weaken the alliance by weakening Japan's confidence that the US will be there to support them. 
And that's exactly what China is trying to do in the East China Sea today. It seems to me that the objective of China's um, policy towards the Senkaku Dayo Islands is not really aimed at uninhabitable rocks. It's aimed at using them as an opportunity to undermine, undermine Japan's confidence in the US alliance and therefore undermine the US position in the Western Pacific. And it's succeeding. That's what's happening. That's what, that's, that, that's, a, that's what sets up the situation that I described in my scenario. Now, just to be clear, I don't think China wants a confrontation with the United States. Certainly doesn't. Certainly doesn't. But it thinks that the United States will be willing to back off, thinks the United States will fail a test that it's trying to set it in the Senkakus, and that it can get what it wants without confrontation. The question is, are they right? Are they right that the United States will be willing to back off? How does the US respond? Well, this is a tough question. And one of the reasons it's tough is the US itself is in denial about the problem. Now, it's very rash to generalise about an entity as complex and multifarious and sophisticated as the United States, but I'm going to generalise about it anyway because I think what I'm saying is broadly true of the US policy community. The US system is largely in denial about the scale of China's rise and the scale of China's ambitions. The President, in his introduction to the new national security strategy published just a couple of weeks ago, could still say, without attracting howls of derision, that on all the most significant measures of national power, including economic power, America has never been stronger. This is just not true. It's just not true. But American political leaders can keep on saying this and American scholars keep on nodding. It's a very serious failure in American national life. Secondly, they're in denial about the extent to which China's economic rise has already significantly shifted the military balance. This is a big subject. I'll just give you the two-sentence version. Americans talking about this tend to focus on the fact that they have the biggest defence budget or the most aircraft carriers or the most sophisticated technology, all of which is true. But it's also irrelevant. What matters is not what you've got or what you can spend, it's what you can do with it and what the other guys can stop you doing with it. China has spent a lot of money over the last few years um, aiming to do one thing, almost one thing only, and that is to improve its capacity to prevent the United States projecting power by sea close to China. It's the only thing they've tried to do and it's the thing they must do to undermine the military foundations of the US posture in the Western Pacific. And that's already largely achieved, hence the dilemma that the um, chairman sketched to my president in my scenario. And I think the United States is also, or has also been for a while, perhaps is to still extend, in denial about China's ambitions. There's a very common argument in the United States that, Amer that China needs peace in order to grow economically, that US primacy provides the only possible basis for peace in Asia, and therefore that China must, in, when all said and done, accept and support US primacy in Asia. That would, be, uh, that would only be true if the Chinese could not imagine that China could be stable without US primacy. In other words, if the Chinese agreed with America that the only possible foundation for stability in Asia is US primacy. 
Well, they don't buy that. Perfectly easy for the Chinese to imagine Asia being very stable on some basis other than US primacy. Chinese primacy wouldn't be a bad start. Um, so the, 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 the fact that China wants stability in Asia is absolutely right. The fact that that means they inherently, deeply support US primacy is, I think, quite wrong. And I think the US is also in denial about the attitudes of other, other Asian countries. Everybody in Asia wants to avoid living under China's shadow. And everyone recognises that keeping the US engaged is the best way to do that. But nobody wants a bad relationship with China. Nobody wants to live with the consequences of US-China rivalry. So everybody wants the United States to stay engaged on a basis that China's prepared to accept. So other countries in Asia are not there to support US primacy. They're there to, to ask the United States to avoid Chinese primacy, and that's not the same thing. Now, the result of these denials was the pivot, the heart of the pivot policy, seems to me was an assumption by the United States that China's challenge wasn't serious. Even after 2008, even after the Chinese had started becoming much more assertive, the, the underlying logic of the pivot was that China was only trying it on. And, it, and all the Americans had to do to, to push the Chinese back, to stop the Chinese trying it on, was to say to the Chinese, we are committed to maintaining primacy in Asia. And the Chinese would, oh, step back, sorry, whoops, didn't mean to offend. Um, that's, that's, that's the only rationale I can see for a policy which is so purely rhetorical and has so, so little real substance. The pivot in the end is a speech, not a strategic policy. It's a statement. And in, in the end, the Chinese didn't buy it. In fact, on the contrary, the Chinese responded with what seems to me to be a very deliberate set of actions to precisely demonstrate to the United States that they were not going to step back just because Barack Obama had said that America would use all the elements of American power to preserve the status quo. On the contrary, they set a few tests very soon after the Obama, the, the Obama's big speech in Canberra as it happened, um, outlining the pivot. The Chinese started conducting themselves in the Scarborough Shoals with the Philippines in a very assertive way. I'm not making a judgment on the rights or wrongs of the issue. I'm just making the point that there was a very assertive Chinese moves in, this, in, this, in Scarborough Shoals, um, uh, which led the Philippines to turn over their shoulders, as you would, and say to Washington, are you going to come and help? And Washington said, mm, no, not this time. And a few months after that, they did the same thing in the Senkakus, Dalio Islands. And... Again, for a long time, until Obama went there, just in, went to um, Tokyo in May last year, Americans were very reluctant to commit to supporting uh, Japan over, over the Senkakus. So the Chinese have in fact tested the claim in the pivot and have found it, found it wanting. But as that's happened, we have seen the escalating strategic rivalry between the US and China, which I think has been the most significant development in Asia over the last couple of years. And it is worth just bearing in mind that that escalating strategic rivalry derives from their fundamentally different views of their respective roles in Asia. China does seek a new model uh, of major power relations in Asia, and America seeks to preserve the status quo. Um, and this is a very dangerous situation. It's that situation, 
a situation in which both have very, very deeply care about the outcomes. Um, uh, both believe they can have what they want without war because both expect the others to back off. Uh, both are probably wrong about that. Uh, that's why the risk of a confrontation is so high. So how do we fix that? And what can 1914 tell us about it? Well, just like in Europe in 1914, Asia needs a new order that reflects the new distribution of power. That new order must be acceptable to both the US and China. And that means that both are going to need to compromise from their preferred position. China is not going to be able to become the primary power in Asia. America is not going to be able to remain the primary power in Asia. Neither of them are going to get everything they want if they're going to avoid escalating strategic rivalry. And that means very tough choices for both sides. Um, and the only reason to think that they're likely to make those tough choices is the alternative is so appalling, just as it was in 1914. Now, China, China's side of this is critical. There's a very interesting debate to be had in China about how serious they are about trying to push the US out of Asia and whether they're prepared to pay the costs involved. And here the key question is not what does China want, which is the way people often settle, uh, phrase it, but what will China settle for? What, what's, what's its absolute bottom line? We could talk about that, but I want to talk instead about the other side of the debate. That is the US choice. And partly I want to focus on that because I'm an Australian. Australia is a US ally. That's where our biggest influence lies. But also because the US choice gets less attention than the Chinese choice because so much of the debate presupposes that all the choices are China's to make. I think China has choices to make, but I think America does too. And when we look at America's choices, I'm going to sound like I'm oversimplifying, but I think it is as simple as this. As it confronts China's challenge to the existing order in Asia, America just has three options. It can contest China's challenge, what it's in effect trying to do. That's the default position. And it looks good if China backs off. But it looks a lot, much less good if China doesn't. And if or when America takes China's power and resolves seriously, it has to ask itself, is it willing to take on escalating strategic rivalry with this most formidable adversary in order to preserve the status quo in Asia? How much does the status quo in Asia really matter to America? And when it frames it in that term, those terms, you soon move on to the next option, which is withdrawal. Now, most people think that US withdrawal from Asia is almost unthinkable because that's what US political leaders and analysts and policy scholars and so on keep on saying. Um, I, I don't think it's inevitable. I don't think it's impossible. I think it's a perfectly credible possibility, not in the short term, not this year or next year. But it's perfectly possible that the US will find itself taking a series of choices which cumulatively over time mean that the United States is no longer playing a significant strategic role in Asia. Um, and and that would be a very serious outcome, I think, for Asia. Very bad outcome for Asia. And if withdrawal was the only alternative to escalating strategic rivalry, then I would say the chances of that happening are very high, because I'm not at all sure that when America really looks at the issue, they'll decide that their presence in Asia is so important to them that it's worth taking on escalating strategic rivalry with China as China is and is likely to become. But it's not. it's not. There are not just two futures in Asia, one in which China is a dominant power and one in which America is a dominant power. 
there's a whole nest of third options in which they share power in some ways. And the third US option is not to contest or to withdraw, but to accommodate China to a degree to find a way to share power. Now, that's easy to say. It's very hard to put flesh on. It's important to say that that's not... Sharing power is not, a, is not a code for conceding primacy to China. It's not a code word for withdrawal. On the contrary, it's a way of avoiding conceding primacy in Asia to China and at the same time evading escalating strategic rivalry. And to do that, it's, I would say that the United States is going to have to treat China as an equal, whatever that means. Now, it's very hard to define precisely what it means. Um, I have some tests which I'd be happy to explain uh, I, I, in the discussion period later. But suffice to say that um, when people, and particularly Americans, say to me, OK, Hugh, just tell me what that looks like, I say, fine, I'll tell you what it looks like when you tell me what your model looks like. What does escalating rivalry with China look like? Because my model is vague and complicated, but their model is bloody dangerous. So I say, you tell me what your model looks like. Now, I can tell you what my model looks like, but I'll, I'll hold on. But, um, but this is a hard thing to do. This would require us making real concessions to China, to giving China a much bigger role in the way in which Asia runs. And that's a very hard thing to do. It's hard partly because of the nature of the Chinese Communist Party. Questions of values come into play here. And the idea that we would compromise societies like ours would compromise our values in order to accommodate China is not one that we're comfortable with. Well, that's a big subject. Let me just make this point. One of Isaiah Berlin's big ideas, which he came back to again and again, was the thought that, um, that the sort of tragedy of politics was that our values are not com all compatible and that there's no ideal world out there in which we can have it, in which everything works out. We're forever having to compromise between our values. And so when we look at the values that we would have to sacrifice in order to accommodate with China, we do have to balance them against the importance of peace. Peace is a value too, one might say. And how we'd make that balance would be a very important part of the picture. Another reason why this idea of accommodating China is so hard is because we don't just think of the lessons of 1914, we think of the lessons of 1938 and the dangers of appeasement. And that is a real point. I think we have to take it very seriously. But I also think it's a big mistake for us to apply our historical lessons to mechanically. We could treat China as if it was Nazi Germany, and it would save us from difficult choices, but it would come at a very great cost. And in the end, China is not Nazi Germany. Whatever it is, is not Nazi Germany. I don't think we can... We are yet in a position where we can justifiably conclude that this is not a country with, with whom we can negotiate. But as in any negotiation, we will have to set and define limits and we'll have to be prepared to enforce those limits. The mistake in 1938, seems to me, was not that Chamberlain was prepared to accommodate Hitler, was that he wasn't prepared to define very precisely in a way that Hitler found unmistakable where the limits of his accommodation was. If we're going to do a deal with China, we have to define the limits very clearly. And lastly, of course, it's hard because the politics are so hard, particularly in the United States. 
A lot of conversations I have with American friends on this end with a comment, well, that's all very well, Hugh, but I'll tell you, no American president is ever going to be able to stand up and tell, them, tell the American people that they're going to accommodate China and treat China as an equal. And it might be true. It's very hard to do. But to say of the US political system that it is incapable of encompassing the idea of an accommodation with China is to say that the United States political system is incapable of responding effectively to the most fundamental change in the distribution of global power since America emerged from isolationism in the late 19th century. And I don't think either Americans or America's friends should accept the idea that America has no choice but to slide into escalating strategic rivalry with, with a country as powerful as China just because it's too hard for its politicians to work out how to explain the changing realities to their publics. That's just an abrogation of political leadership. Well, let me f lastly say two things about the UK and Australia. This is a huge issue for Australia. No country is closer to America and no country is more dependent economically on China. An escalating strategic rivalry between the US and China, or war, even worse, would be a disaster for everyone, but it would be a mega-disaster for Australia. Dealing with this is the biggest foreign policy challenge in Australia's relatively short history. We're very deeply attached to the current order based on US primacy. But we, more than anybody, need a new order which protects our interests as well as it can, but avoids escalating strategic rivalry. And at the moment, we in Australia are not engaging in this debate. We keep on saying, we don't have to choose between America and China. But that's only true um, uh, to the extent that the US and China don't become strategic rivals. And it's already not true to the extent that they already are strategic rivals. The more strategic rivalry between them escalates, the less true that becomes and the starker the choices we will face. And in particular, we in Australia have a choice as to whether we should continue, as we have hitherto, to urge the United States to simply resist China's challenge, which increases the risk of escalating rivalry and increases the risk of a disaster for us, or whether we should start to urge the United States to accommodate China. And I think, in a sense, UK and perhaps Europe more broadly face a similar choice, if perhaps from a slightly greater distance. Britain's interests best served by an America which attempts to contest China's challenge and resist any accommodation, or by one in which the United States at least seeks, attempts to build an accommodation with China which preserves the strongest possible US role but avoids escalating rivalry. I think that's a huge issue for Britain as well, bigger to my mind than the Ukraine, which is saying something because the Ukraine is a very big deal. And Margaret Macmillan ended her book on 1914 by saying, there are always choices. And I think it's a very important insight. There are always choices on this business. And I think the choices that countries like ours face and the choices that America faces are amongst the most important we've ever faced. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Um, we've got a, a good half hour. We've got a half an hour now for questions and discussion. So I'm going to just start by taking singles and see how we go. I'll start with that um, man at the back. And can you say who you are and where you're from? 
Thank you very much, Alexander Dimum at King's College at the moment. Uh, thanks a lot for your talk. Um, you spoke of China very much as a singular actor. Yes. Uh, so basically I was wondering if you could also give us a brief glance into the black box, as it were. So basically, are, do you think there are any significant factions or divisions within the Chinese leadership on, subject, on subjects like a potential conflict with Japan and the U.S.? What is the potential role of the military? Is that an, at all an autonomous actor in this? And what is the role of the potential role of nationalist currents in China outside the leadership, possibly also to some extent beyond the leadership's control, uh, in case such a conflict would be triggered? Also, perhaps on the basis of the experience of 1914, where I guess yes. those were uh, yes. substantial factors. Yes. Thanks a lot. A very, very good, very good question. And and truth in advertising here, I do not regard myself as a expert on Chinese internal politics. I work with some of the world's foremost experts on that subject, which makes me very modest on that issue. But that's not going to stop me having a go. Um, look, I, I do think there's obviously uh, a great deal of complexity in China's internal debates. Um, and I think this, the way in which China's political system at the moment of evol is evolving is itself a terribly interesting question. I think Xi runs a you know, there's a kind of revolution going on in China. It's a different kind of political system, and nobody quite knows where that's going to end up. But I'm going to, having said that, I'm going to chance my arm on a pretty stark response. I think the, there is a very strong consensus in China about the idea that it wants to build a new model of great power relations, that it's not prepared to accept the status quo. I dare say there's a pretty complex debate about how hard that should be pushed, how it should be pushed, but the idea that China should not accept the status quo um, and should uh, aspire to rebuild its position as a great power seems to me to be very deeply embedded, very broadly across the Chinese political system and indeed across the Chinese community as a whole. Um, uh, and I think that's a very important I think that's a very important starting point. Um, there is a contrast there, for example, with Japan, where there's a real divergence within Japan about Japan's future strategic personality. I, I, I don't think there is in China. Um, and it's worth making the point that, um, you know, what that reflects, of course, is something that we'd call nationalism, you know, a desire to you know, see the see the state, see the country, take a big role and all the rest of it. But I don't think there's anything particularly special or unusual about Chinese nationalism. I think China is responding to its changed position of relative power exactly the way every other country in history has ever responded to a changed position of relative power. It's what Britain did when Britain acquired the world's biggest economy. It's what... America did when it acquired the world's biggest economy. It's, it, I, I'm not quite sure what the correct methodological approach to this question is, but it does seem to be something pretty close to a law of nature. And I think China is just doing what everybody else has done. And I don't see it's doing much more than that. I don't think there's no, nothing to my mind. I think China is a very ambitious power, but I don't think it's exceptionally ambitious for a country that has achieved what it's achieved economically over the last few decades. And then when you add, you have to add on top of that, that it comes to this with a great sense of its own place in the international system and the whole business about 5,000 years and all of that. 
Um, but I think that has less influenced myself than just the simple fact that uh, within, well, within the lifetime of somebody my age, China's gone from having an economy one-twentieth the size of America's to an economy the same size as America's. It would be very easy under those circumstances to think, wow, step back, make some space, here we are. Um, I hate to think how Australia would conduct itself if we had the biggest economy in the world. Well, actually, you don't have to speculate. Just, just go around the South Pacific and ask them, you, you, you know, how's it, how's it feel like to have Australia as a great power in your strategic system? Now, ask the guys in Suva, or, or Wellington for that matter. Um, the second point is the, the point about the role of different players on how this is played out. Um, you know, I spent my whole career working with the military, so I know their little foibles. Um, and no doubt there are elements in the Chinese, in the PLA, and different elements of the PLA that have particular agendas. And you can see this coming out in the way the retired generals and you know, admirals and things contribute to the, to the debate in China. Uh, but I don't see that shaping China's actual responses. I've never bought the argument that somehow... Chinese leaders before Xi or Xi himself find themselves pressed to do things they don't want to do because they have to do it in order to preserve the support of the of, of the military. Um, some of my, you know, to, to really justify that one would need to do a lot of very deep research, which I haven't done, but I've, I've never watched China doing something which required that to explain it. It's always looked to me like um, with, a, with the exception of a couple of very specific cases, like the initial response to the EP3 downing, which was very messy. Um, uh, I, I think one can explain what China is doing much more simply, much more economically, by saying that, uh, uh, by, by analysing it as a, as a fairly deliberate strategy in which the military are basically doing what they're told. And it does seem to me that the Chinese system is pretty disciplined. The PLA obviously has a significant political role, but it, it, I, I think we would be unwise not to... Um, sometimes people use the role of the military as sort of saying, well, look, the leaders don't really mean this. They're only doing it to please the military. No, I think, I think the leaders do mean it. Uh, I, th I think we need... It, I, I don't think we should, so to speak, uh, use that as a way of under understating the significance of what China's trying to do. So my basic point, I guess, is that I think the, 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 the military, though they're an interesting and dynamic factor, are not driving this policy. They're not driving this basic agenda. OK. Now, there's quite a few questions here. Can I start with uh, Professor Cox? Just, just wait, wait for a sec. Uh, well, firstly, thank you, Hugh, for a great lecture. Uh, stark very Australian, <laughs> as I know from your previous writings. Uh, and as you know, your own position did not go down terribly well, either in the Australian defence community and certainly not in the United States. Uh, no bad thing, not a criticism, just an observation. You know better than I do. I suppose that one, one observation and one question. One is, of course, if one is using history and one uses the previous histories of attempts at accommodation with rising great powers, and you hinted at yeah. that anyway, yeah. it ain't a good record. No. Uh, I'm a student of Edward Halleck Carr, and I know the 20 yes. years crisis almost backwards uh, because I wrote a long introduction for it many years ago, nearly as long as the book. And, you know, however much admiration I have for Edward Halleck Carr's 20 years crisis, in the end he was wrong. Yes. 
And I suppose you might say in 1944-45, the United States also tried a form of accommodation yes, with the Soviet yes, Union yes. Uh, under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and it yes. didn't work either. And yes. So there is a bigger, you know, if you're using history, and I thought yes. you used it very yes. wisely yes. and sensitively, you know, there's a, there's a bad history there too of great power accommodations to rising great powers. And there's two problems, as you know. One is that small powers get sat on as a result. That, that's, that's your problem. You can do the great power accommodation, but the small powers, including big powers like Japan, but small yeah, relatively, small are going to get sat on, as was Czechoslovakia, as with the East Europeans. And secondly, you don't know how much accommodation you've got to do to stop, yeah. to come to the yeah. deal. I mean, that's, that's yeah. a big problem. Yeah. So that's a kind of general observation. Yeah. You, you can either pick up on that or not, but yeah. I mean, I'm just kind of using the history to illustrate the problems of which you are deeply sensitive and well aware, so I'm not saying anything original. I suppose my more my more kind of challenging question, I suppose, is hasn't the choice already been made by the United States in some sense of accommodation? I mean, you talked in great, you talked at great length about rivalry, all of which is there, and we've seen it demonstrated over the last few years. Uh, but it seems to me, that, and I throw this out um, as a kind of provocation in some ways, it seems to me the United States has in some sense already made a choice. Uh, about about China. I mean, I would actually argue strongly that without the United States, China could not have risen. Uh, without China, without the United States opening up its market to Chinese goods, it could not have risen. Uh, it could have made a choice after Tiananmen Square in June. It, it chose not to. It chose, it chose to accommodate the United States, as we well know, first Bush and then Clinton. Um, it, it made choices when it actually really ramrodded through the whole question of WTO membership. Yeah. For China in 2000, 2001. In a way, whether they want, whether the U.S. recognizes it or not, it seems to me that China, that the United States has already made a, a series of choices and has arrived yeah. at the position it's yeah. in today. Now, yeah. I'm not saying they were yeah. the wrong choices. Yeah. I'm simply saying that I think they've already made those choices, uh, and they, in, in a way, I think you've got to live with that reality, or yeah. whether you like yeah. it or not. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's the way I kind of pose. But again, thanks for coming to the LSE for yeah. a great lecture here. You would be. Yes. Thanks, Mick. There's two very good uh, points. Um, let me start with the second one. Um, uh, certainly, I, I absolutely agree. The, 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 the settlement with China um, in 72 and everything that flowed from it in America's role um, uh, at every step since then has been absolutely central to China's growth. A, a necessary, though not sufficient, condition. I completely agree with that. Um, uh, but I don't believe that that reflects a decision by the United States to accept China as a great power, because throughout that process, America has continued to convince itself that China would not get that big and strong. Um, uh, and right at the heart of that was the emergence of the idea of hedging. You, you know, the, 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 use of the, the use of the phrase hedging, the word hedging to describe US policy towards China goes right back to the mid-90s. Uh, mid and it was based on the idea that America would control the gate that allowed China out into the global economy. And as long as China accepted US primacy, it would keep the gate open. And if ever China looked like not accepting US primacy, they'd close the gate. And that idea continued to have currency right the way through until about five years ago, until, if I can put it this way, being less polite about Washington, I really mean to be, I guess, even in Washington they realised that they could no longer ch close the gate on an economy that big. Um, but I, I, I don't think, uh, as, as Americans held the gate open, they realised what they were letting through the door. 
Um, and as one of the reasons for that is that this moment happened at a time when everyone was telling America and Americans were telling themselves that they were going to rule the world. This was the moment of the, you know, the unipolar moment turning into a genuine conviction that, you know, a lot of people wrote it through the, through the mid to late 90s that, that America was in an unchallengeable position, that it was going to be the primary power, economic, technological, militarily, military, everything else, right through the 21st century. And they just, you know, and they just didn't see where the arithmetic was heading. I remember Ross Garneau, great Australian economist on China, uh, foreshadowing the likelihood of China overtaking the United States and hearing Americans laugh. This is in the late 90s. Um, and so I, I don't think they have made the choice. I think they made a whole lot of choices without understanding what the consequences were, and now they're facing up to the consequences, and it's a bit scary. Uh, the point, your first point is absolutely right. Um, uh, let me separate it into two. The first is that, you know, the, the, when, when big powers cooperate, small powers lose out, and that is exactly right. And the choice for smaller powers is whether they lose more by suffering from the consequences of great power cooperation or more from the suffering from rivalry. And, and you know, I, I've apol apologised to the splendid bloke who's the Polish ambassador in Canberra for using this example, because it's a tough one. But if you look at Poland's history, in the 19th century, Poland suffered terribly from the deals that were done between the great powers. It really was terrible. In the 20th century, Poland suffered terribly from the failure of the great powers to do deals. And you've got to ask the question, would you rather have been Polish in the 19th century or the 20th century? And my Polish friends look at me in that tearful way that Poles have and say, hmm, 19th century probably. So, you know, in, in, in ASEAN they have this sort of joke that whether the elephants fight or the elephants make love, the ants still get squashed. Well, actually, no, that's not true. The ants get squashed a lot flatter when the elephants fight. And so in the, Southeast, in the Asian context, you know, Southeast Asians in particular, who are very sensitive to this issue, have to decide whether they'd rather live with the deals that the great powers do while they're not in the room or live with the consequences of them not doing deals. And I think that's... To my mind, that's a tough choice, but I, I, th I think it's better to have a, have a deal. Now, the point about these deals is they have a very bad record. They do. Um, uh, and I'm, you know, I don't for a moment assume that it can happen, and I think it has to be done with great caution. Um, uh, but I think um, uh, there are there are reasons for being more optimistic about the present moment than one than some of the previous historical examples suggest. For example, you're right. I think what FDR was trying to do with the four policemen model in 1945 before he died is quite a close an analogue to the kind of relationship I'm I'm suggesting, and that didn't work. I mean, really, what the X article was all about was Kennan saying, no, we can't build this kind of relationship with the Soviet Union because the legitimacy of the Soviet state depends on it having an adversarial relationship with, with the United States. And I think that's probably true of the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union wasn't delivering much else. Um, I don't think that's true of China. I, I, think, I, I don't think the Chinese state has to have a bad relationship with the United States in order to establish its legitimacy. 
Um, so I think there is scope for that, but it certainly it needs to be very... You, you need to define the limits of accommodation very carefully and you need to be prepared to enforce those limits of accommodation if necessary with armed force. And that's a very daunting prospect. But the alternative is to say we're going to go to war over the Sinkakus. Well, no thanks. <laughs> so I think it's, 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 it's difficult and awkward, but, there, but I keep on coming back to how bad the alternative is. OK, we're sort of halfway through, so let's try and get okay. a, a few yes, more sorry. questions in. Um, this gentleman here, just um, who, who you are and where you're from. Robin Hannow, a graduate of the International Relations Department many years ago at AC. Um, I just want to ask you a wonderful talk. What I what might ask you, bring Inda in on this, I think yes. that that might be relevant in terms of overall power relationship in Asia, Japan, China, yes. America. Could you just say anything about how India comes into this relationship, whether it will have some influence on American-Chinese relationships? Yeah, very good question. India. India. Yes, uh, thank, thank you for that. I left India out for the sake of conciseness, but it is a terrible omission, and I, I also should have said a lot more about Japan. A couple of points. The first thing is the deal I, I envisage being done between the US and China actually has to involve Japan and India as well because they are great powers in this system. Um, and I think India is potentially a very significant player, but I don't think it's significant the way most other people do. The, the sort of common view is that India aligns with America, supports America in resisting China's challenge to US primacy and therefore helps America to counterbalance China's power. I think that's a model which sees India as a kind of a passive lump of strategic weight which just goes on America's side of the scales, and it's not. India is a great power in its own right. Um, it has objectives of its own. India's objective in Asia is not going to be to maximise US primacy it's going to maximise its own influence, and it won't do that by subordinating its interests to America's. And so although I think India will be enthusiastic in, help, in, in encouraging the United States to help prevent Chinese primacy in Asia, it won't do much to help support American primacy in Asia. It will rather have a system in which India's own influence is maximised. Um, and... And I think that therefore puts a very significant ceiling on the extent to which India is going to be willing to support the United States as long as America's objective is the preservation of US primacy, which I think it is at the moment. Um, uh, and you can test that uh, very simply. Uh, my American friends who are all very optimistic about uh, the result of Obama's visit to India last month, month before last now, um, I said, OK, so just tell me this. Is India going to come... If In my scenario, the president rings up London, rings up Canberra, also rings up New Delhi and says to India, you, you guys going to send, a, you know, one of your aircraft carriers or something to help us pick up the Sinkakus? No, no way. Wouldn't even think about it. I don't think. I don't know. Maybe some, but I, 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 I don't think India is going to see itself as that kind of, of, of asset. So it's a very significant player, but it doesn't solve America's problem. 
Okay, um, let, let's take a couple of questions. If you can just take some yep, notes, take and we notes. have um, th this gentleman at the back, and then the gentleman in the jacket here. Uh, two quick points. Um, Japan has ripped up its constitution. Sorry, who, who, who are you? Could you oh, sorry, Matthew Halliday. I'm a member of the public. Um, two quick points. Japan has ripped off its constitution, and Chinese China's navy has been written off in these walls as a, a laughing stock. Sorry, say that. China's navy. Yes. It doesn't doesn't amount to anything. What do I think of it? I mean, is, is that true or not? What? I'm sorry. Is the Chinese Navy really r rightly written off as a laughing stock? Oh, right. Um, and Good. this gentleman Good. here. Uh, Paul McGrail, Catholic Workers Group. Um, the focus seems to be on the South China Sea and you know what's what what could occur there. But you you you, you haven't mentioned um, Korea, the situation in Korea, yeah. or yeah. Taiwan. Yeah. Are they as sensitive as perhaps they have been in the past? Yeah. And se and secondly, what. Well, <clears throat> Couldn't Australia play the, the part of the honest broker, and as you mentioned, um, be, as it's part of the Anglophone world, it's got cultural ties with America. At the same time, its its, a, it's, it's foremost trading partner is China, yes. so it's perfectly placed yes. to be a mediator in, in any any event. Yes. Okay. Very very good set of questions. Okay. Look, Japan is a whole very dramatic part of this picture. And again, I left Japan out to keep the analysis simple. But I do think um, J Japan faces a genuine strategic crisis because for 70 years um, it's based its position, its national posture um, on being a strategic client of the United States and that's worked for Japan to the extent that it's been confident that the United States would be there for them. And it, from a very simple process, you might call this a sort of like Newtonian geopolitics. The stronger China becomes, the more Japan feels, fears China, and the less confident it is that America will be there to help them, and therefore the less viable this posture has been. And I think we just have to accept that um, as things stand, Japan will walk away from uh, the post-war Yoshida construct. Now, what that will mean and where it will go is a very interesting question. One possibility is it becomes a strategic client of China's. A lot of people think that's impossible. I, I'm not so sure I don't know Japan that well, but some of my friends who know Japan much better than I do think that's a possibility. But another possibility is it sets itself up as an adversary great power of China's. Either way, it's a, different, it's a very different story from the one we've known. Um, I think we would, you know, I think one of the big things that changes in Asia is the way in which Japan functions. Um, uh, no, I don't think the Chinese Navy is a laughing stock at all. I think the Chinese Navy has been very effective, and I should say maritime forces, because it includes um, uh, the Air Force and, of course, the a second artillery as well. I think that as a you know, I used to do force planning for a living, and um, uh, as, when I look at what China's done since 1996, it's a model of good force planning. They've worked out what they wanted to do. They've looked at the most cost-effective ways of doing it. They've invested in that precisely. So what did they want to do? They wanted to prevent the United States from projecting power against China uh, by sea, and so they invested very heavily in the capacity to sink American ships. And that's what they've done. 
and they can sink American ships now in a way they couldn't in 1996. That very significantly limits the Americans' capacity to project power by sea, and that's really important in undermining the US strategic position in Asia. But the Chinese have not themselves developed the capacity to, to, to project power by sea. They can sink American ships, but they can't stop America sinking their ships. And so we now are in a kind of a... It's a little bit of a... Another 1914-18 metaphor. There's a little bit of a 1914-18 situation. That is, the defence is very strong and attack is very difficult. Um, the United States can prevent China projecting power by sea. China can pre prevent the United States projecting power by sea. They end up um, in a kind of a stalemate. But with this difference, America has to project power by sea in order to have a strategic presence in the Western Pacific, and China doesn't because it lives there. So it ends up with an asymmetry in China's favour. Um, yes, Korea and Taiwan. Um, uh, I, I'm going to say something a little bit surprising. I, I don't think the Korean Peninsula is as dangerous a place as most other people do because it, it, as far as I can see, on the Korean Peninsula, US and Chinese objectives are not that far apart. Um, I think there is an interesting... I think the position of South Korea is very interesting. I think South Korea is much less assured US asset than a lot of other people do. Because it seems to me that from South Korea's perspective, its alliance with the United States is about North Korea. It's not about China. Um, and I think that North, the South Koreans would be very reluctant to find themselves drawn into... Um, supporting the United States against China on any issue in which North Korea wasn't directly involved. So I think there's an inherent fragility in the US-South Korean relationship. But I don't think things that happen on the Korean Peninsula are a very likely spark for the kind of scenario that I sketched. Taiwan, on the other hand, I think is. Taiwan used to be, you know, for decades, it was the big thing when the US and China had, you know, after 72 and everything was sorted out, Taiwan had, was, was left out and remained uh, the one issue on which the US and China could credibly go to war. Um, we became much more relaxed about that, um, particularly under Ma, um, because there seemed a credible argument that economic integration was going to progress to the point where political accommodation of some sort was going to be acceptable. Uh, but I think people have lost a lot of confidence in that just over the last year or so. The, the, the sunflower <coughs> uh, movement, the reaction, the political anxiety in Taiwan about the political implications of the closer economic relationship, uh, the question as to whether the DPP doesn't get back up at the, at, uh, at the election uh, later this year. Um, and, and I think there is also, it seems to me, and I wouldn't claim to be a big expert on this, but it seems to me there's now reduced optimism in Beijing about the trajectory on Taiwan. I think for a while in Beijing um, there was a sense that this was all going, heading their way. And, you know, might take a while, but it's trending in the right direction. I think there's less optimism about that now. And so I think there's a, we, we should keep a close eye on the possibility that differences over Taiwan again becomes a very credible spark for US-China confrontation. And what strikes me is how strongly America, Americans continue to see their commitment to Taiwan as fundamental to their position in the Western Pacific. As a matter of fact, I think that's wrong. I think America would actually let Taiwan go 
and still preserve a position in the Western Pacific, all other things being equal. But that's not, I, th I think, the chances of the United States deciding that it had no choice but to take China on over Taiwan is quite high. And for what it's worth, I don't think it would work. I don't think the United States any longer has military options to allow it to, to defend Taiwan. Um, I think that's one of the things that's been lost with the development of the US, of, um, of the Chinese maritime capabilities. Uh, look, Australia is an honest broker. Um, I, I don't think Australia has a role as an intermediary between the US and China. If by intermediary we mean, you know, you sort of do the Henry Kissinger thing, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, the sort of shuttle diplomacy. The US and China can talk to one another fine, it's just what they say is the problem. So I don't see Australia as an intermediary between them. But I do see Australia, and for that matter other countries, as having a very strong interest in the way that relationship evolves, and therefore a perfect right and responsibility to represent to both of them where we think Australian interests should be. And I think that's particularly significant in relation to America because we are a US ally and America certainly expects us to be there for them. So I think what Australia should be doing is not shuttling between them, but going to the United States and saying, this is what we think you should do about China. And also going to Beijing and saying, this is what we think you should do about the United States. But I think that we, we have inherently greater credentials in Washington uh, because of our alliance position. And that's what Australia has not so far been willing to do. Um, so that's what I, and as Mick mentioned, you don't necessarily make yourself popular in Canberra by telling governments they should go to Washington and tell them they should share power with China. But, well, it's not a beauty competition. OK, well, there, there were a couple of other questions, but I think the time has sort of come. Uh, I just want to, um, first of all, make the point that there, there are books out there if you're interested in following up on this argument in more detail, and um, Hugh White's going to stay here with me if you want to come back and get it signed. Um, but I think um, it, it's just left for me to say that it's been a tr tremendously interesting um, lecture. I mean, what, what we've heard, in a way, is an attempt to identify some major developments and changes that are shifting the world Order. Then we've heard a kind of brave comparison to try and draw on the lessons of the past to think about how that might be addressed, and more than that, uh, even an attempt to offer the beginnings of a possible solution. So um, can you join me in thanking our speaker, Professor Hugh White?